episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Karen's Therapy and Nutrition. Karen's Therapy and Nutrition, specializing in EMDR therapy for the treatment of trauma, food, weight, and body concerns, now offering virtual and in-person sessions. Visit therapy. T-H-E-R-A-P-Y dot com for more information or to schedule a consultation today. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask a potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Melissa Hargrave, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist Supervisor and Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor will be talking about her practice in an area of specialty, sexual anxiety. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me. This is really enjoyable. So uh, tell us a little bit about your credentials and experience. Ah, well, I, um, uh, at some point, got in a long-term relationship and had to ask the hard question of, whose idea was this anyway? And... <laughs> So in grad school, I focused uh, really um, intently on sex therapy, and I was curious about human sexuality and um, our sexual functioning and how that works. And um, when I, in, in my reading of uh, sexuality issues, I really figured out um, how marginalized uh, sexual diversity was. Um, I hadn't really considered it. Uh, and it really was eye-opening for me. And so first thing I did was focused on gender and sexual um, identities and orientations. Um, and that has taken me a long way. And at some point, I got really interested in, uh, you know, partnership sexualities. Like, how do partners relate to each other over, you know, decades? Um, and if you don't mind, one of my favorite things to share is a couple that I worked with that for 19 years had the most beautiful, wonderful sex life. 
and I came to therapy in their 20th year to get a checkup. And I just, I, I don't hear that very often. It was a really, you know, wonderful story. So I just love people and their stories. That's really mm-hmm. how I got into this. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. So um, what is the name of your practice? Ah, well, it's a DBA. So it's, I'm a sole practitioner and I use uh, Hill Country Therapy. It was something I've used since I first got into um, my own private practice, but I did not go to the um, government and say, make it mine and trademark it. Um, so you'll see a couple of other Hill Countries out there and uh, they're just not the same as me. They're all different. Okay. Um, so at your practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? Okay. I do accept BCBS. Um, I've had really a great working relationship with BCBS um, for a long time. Uh, but I have to limit how many clients I can see on insurance. So I generally have a two to three week wait list for BCBS. Clients can sign a waiver uh, signifying that they're okay with paying out of pocket. Um, but I hate to make people do that. So, mm-hmm. Okay. Um, do you have a sliding scale or reduced fee option? I do. During COVID, I have four uh, sliding scale spots for $100 and two sliding scale spots at 75 Okay, cool. Um, are those all full right now, I'd imagine? Maybe not. Yeah, I don't okay. think so. Yeah. So just encourage people to reach out to you then? Yes. Okay, cool. Um, do you have weekend or evening appointments? No, with a special needs 10-year-old, I try to get home as soon as I possibly can for her. Um, but I do offer two nights a week where I can work as late as 530. Okay, cool. Um, is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? I wanted to be a therapist since I was 15 years old. Uh, my stepfather died um, many years ago and I saw the impact it had on my mom. I said, I've got to find a job that'll pay me more money. And I tried everything from uh, Unix coding to um, video editing and um, uh, uh, cooking school, could you not? And every bit of it led me back to, I just love people and their stories. Is that what drew you to being a therapist? Yes. Yeah. When I was 15, my neighbor, I lived in Bryan, Texas. And um, my neighbor went to school with me and she was sitting outside and really upset with her parents. And it was the first time anyone had really opened up to me like that. And I just listened and I was supportive and she was so thankful afterwards. I felt really good. Um, But I realized I felt good too, because it was nice to know that other people had struggles. Mm-hmm. And I realized I was really comforted by that. Um, and it made me curious about other people's lives. And to me, that is a very important char- characteristic to have as a therapist is that curiosity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and 
you know, the theoretical orientation that I initially went to grad school for was brief therapy that focused on strength-based, you know, um, uh, theoretical orientations. But the thing is, the whole crux to that is curiosity. So I think uh, graduate school really helped me to take that curiosity and, and even further. Cool. Well, tell us a little more about yourself. What are your hobbies, interests, TV shows you're watching, music, pets? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, I love hiking. I love getting out in nature. Um, I used to do a lot of gardening um, and a lot of cooking for stress, um, but uh, I don't seem to have a lot of time for that now. I do get in a five-mile walk at least once a weekend, um, so I'm getting out that way. Big fan of movies. I've been to 90 different countries. Um, my husband's been to every country <laughs> and my child has been to 12 countries. So we do a lot of travel, I think. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. So I know you had just mentioned uh, solution focused brief therapy, um, generally when you're working with clients, what modalities do you draw upon? Yeah, so I mentioned that um, strength-based theories really, they focus on the subjective reality. So that automatically uh, presupposes that you have to be curious, you know. Um, But I have been the past three and a half years studying modern analysis, particularly as it relates to group therapy. And I've had a lot of training in group therapy, and it puts a whole new meaning on being curious. Um, so now I'm more curious about the feelings that are underneath some of the statements and experiences people are having. Mm-hmm. Um, more curious about, you know, whose voice that might be for the feelings, what history might be behind those feelings. Um, and that's helped me open up uh, much more richer conversations and treatment. Totally agree. Totally agree. So diving into the topic of sexual anxiety, how did you come upon the idea of sexual anxiety? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, By the way, the insight uh, slogan that you have is why I love it is because I think insight's really important. I just wanted to say that. I do Um, too. Yeah, I I love hearing that. Um, Sexual anxiety, you know, I... For a long time, my focus with working with couples was on desire discrepancy. And, you know, one of the first presentations I gave um, as a new budding therapist was on, um, uh, you know, low sex drives, you know, at the time, low sexual desire. And we've come a, I've come a long way in my understanding of sexual functioning since then. So I'm a little embarrassed to say that, you know, I, I focused on um, low sexual desire, but we, we do see in partnerships sec, um, sexual uh, desire discrepancy. Okay. Well, at one time, I have a perfect way of working with uh, partners on desire discrepancy. We just get more clear. And usually the part of the problem of talking about sexual, um, I don't know why I want to call it sexual discrepancy. It's desire discrepancy. Usually what we do is um, we normalize talking about sex because that's really hard in our culture. Um, 
And we look at the total relationship as well, like the kinds of stresses, the kind of ideas and beliefs that go into um, sexual intimacy. Uh, and it's a real no-brainer for me. I was working with this couple one time who was young and really excited about um, working through their sexual intimacy concerns. And they presented pretty quickly with desire discrepancy. And I went straight into all the stuff that I normally do and sent them home with the homework. And they would both be excited. I would check in with them to make sure they were excited. And they'd come back and every time they could not do the homework every time. And, you know, just out of curiosity, I'm not a big fan of homework, but you want to be curious about what's going on. That's making it a challenge, right? Well, come to find out this person had a phobic response to sexual intimacy. And I was like, wow, I don't really deal with phobia. I know who does, you know, someone who's trained in cognitive behavioral therapy has exposure response therapy and I'll just refer this person there. And then I panicked for the next five years. I'm not kidding you. Um, because I'm like, what's that um, CBT therapist sex positive? Did they feel comfortable with talking about sex? Like one of the things you do in exposure response therapy is you develop a fear hierarchy. Are you able to talk about sex in such a way that puts it into a hierarchy? of, you know, steps. And I realized, holy cow, your normal person can't do that. I've made a mistake. I've made a mistake referring that client. And I felt really a deep regret for a long time. Um, so I began studying um, uh, anxiety and learning as much as I could about it. And um, uh, what I found was that And then the DSM um, reduced the sexual disorders. Um, They didn't say much about it, but one thing they said was, well, some of these can be otherwise related to anxiety. Okay, well, then why don't you update the anxiety disorders section to highlight how this can impact our sexual functioning? No, they didn't do that. They just got rid of things. So... Um, my idea is that, um, anxiety will show up in a variety of ways. And, you know, just like in couples therapy, if couples are sexual or even asexual, like you want to talk about sexuality and relationships, just at least to be curious. And, um, that includes if you're working with an anxious couple talking about how that's impacting their sexual intimacy or their sexual sense of self, or their sexual beliefs and values. Got it. Okay. So in a nutshell, what is sexual anxiety? <laughs> Loaded question. It is. It's a made-up term. I made it up. Matter of <laughs> fact, I, I go back and forth. That doesn't forth. mean that it's not real. Yes, fair. But I, I go back and forth between sex-related anxiety, sexual anxiety, and sex and anxiety, because it's really all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. For instance, um, you've probably heard of uh, uh, performance anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's, there's no diagnosis for performance anxiety. Um, but from a sexuality point of view, um, 
uh, usually performance anxiety is where someone's thinking, ah, I'm not buff enough, or, you know, my, uh, uh, you know, my moves aren't smooth, like whatever it is, right? Um, It's a focus on the fear of judgment, negative judgment from others. So inadequacy. Yeah. Yeah. Now I love that you tell me, say what, tell me more about what you mean about the inadequacy. Well, I, I think that, you know, the, the, what if I'm not this enough is, you know, driven by a fear of being inadequate, right? That's why we, somebody would question it in my opinion. Yes. Now I'm trying to think if that's, I, I don't recall if that's a symptom of social anxiety, but what we do know about social anxiety is that it is um, a fear of being judged by others as being inadequate. Now, if you ask me, you know, that is is a fear of not feeling good enough, right? So they're probably part and partial. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, So, but for me, performance anxiety uh, is not just... Mm -hmm. It, it doesn't mean it's just social anxiety. Right. Um, it may be uh, relative to specific concerns we have about sex. So, for instance, um, one thing we notice about people with penises is that um, uh, sometimes uh, erectile functioning um, or ejaculation can come more, let's say ejaculation can come more um, quickly than they like. Now, you know, studies have shown that, um, you know, uh, usually it causes more distress for young folks with penises than it does for older folks with penises. Now, what's interesting about this is that, okay, you got performance anxiety because ejaculation is rapid. Um, that, that's to be expected, right? So we have some ways to help you to elongate ejaculation. Um, and to desensitize the penis so that it can withstand a little bit more. And let's normalize how long ejaculation um, usually uh, works uh, upon penetration, right? Like there's, you know, a a bell curve for that too. Um, But my point is, uh, let me not get too lost here. My point is, is that uh, sometimes anxiety is helpful and on a spectrum Um, anxiety can help us accomplish things we need to accomplish, take care of things we need to take care of, do our best on our tests and our performances. And sometimes they're just a sign that we need to figure something out. Now, if that anxiety, um, if we can't find our way through it, then that anxiety can kind of hijack us and we get stuck in it. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. What is anxiety? Ooh, and when is it a problem? Oh, it's 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 a challenge to kind of get in there and figure that out. So if someone's struggling with um, rapid ejaculation in their twenties, um, is that necessarily social anxiety? Mm, probably not. But could it be? Well, you're going to have to explore the beliefs and values around that to really get the idea. Yeah. And if you find out that this person has social anxiety along with ejaculation problems, then it's, it's a twofold thing. Right. Right. Yeah. 
I'm curious. So you, you mentioned anxiety can be helpful. And I think where you're coming from is from the perspective of anxiety on a like continuum. Like, because I, I do believe that we can do those things without the distress of anxiety. You know what I mean? I do. Can I give you an example? Yeah, please see it. Okay. It is because we're human and creative beings that we have the capacity to what if and imagine the what if. This is our gift as humans. So our um, stress response system, if a bear jumps out in front of us right now, our stress response is going to quickly react, go into reaction. And we have two primary emotions that are going to go with that. One is fear, eek, a bear, right? The other one's anxiety. And this is the what if. What if there's one behind me, two? What if there's a whole family of bears in the woods? So our ability to um, anticipate, uh, you know, other problems that might come along with the problem we're having is actually... Uh, really beneficial. So mm -hmm. now yeah. we're taking care of one bear and four bears and we're good. Yeah. Yeah. But on the other end of the continuum, I think that we can plan for a trip without the associated distress of anxiety that would make that more difficult. You know, without having to do the anxious what if thought process, I think that planning and preparation is definitely possible for said, yeah. you know, stressful trip without without feeling awful in the process. You know what I mean? Do you see what do you see what I'm saying? I do totally. Even though we're you're using a more realistic example, I'm gonna stick with my non-realistic example of the bear. So our stress response system is really quick. If I jump around a corner and scare my kid, my kid's going to go eek. But immediately upon recognizing me, the stress response system will send signals to calm down. Oh, that's my mom. That's, that's, not, some, that's not a bear. That's not a bear. And, um, you know, usually depending on high, how high the stress is, like let's say I was mom in a costume. I'm as tall as mom. I have a voice like mom, but that may not be mom. That's going to have a higher quotient of fear, right? So that's going to go straight to the amygdala, bypass the thinking brain, and they're going to react and it's going to take them longer to get out of that stress response until they figure out what's going to happen. So great stress response. Now I jump out just as mom, my kiddo is going to go, oh, it's just mom. Ah, it hit me across the arm and say, why'd you do that to me? get mad at me and then cool down. All those stress hormones will stop flooding her system and um, she'll feel better in just a minute. And evolution unless, 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 yes. unless that person that, that your child in that situation continues to be like, oh my gosh, what if this had happened? What if that had happened? Then that would continue that stress response, right? Yes. Yes, and anxiety can do that. Um, uh, 
the thing is, I want the point I want to make with the stress response system is that it it generally, and this is the same for panic attacks. Panic attacks are another fear response. They're just right. Uh, right? And usually they're pretty quick at resolving, but sometimes that anxiety and that fear can get stuck. So if we meet that bear one time, and we're always on the lookout for bears because that fear just didn't resolve or it hijacked our stress response system, yeah, it's really hard to come down from that. And now we're talking trauma. Yeah, now we're talking trauma. But I don't know about getting ready for that vacation if it's not trauma-related to some degree. Because, that could be possible, yeah. Yeah. Now, there are a couple of different ways to think about what hijacks our stress response system. Yes, trauma, but repeated and chronic stress right. can also do that. The way we're shaped in childhood, our personality traits. For instance, um, you have people who are more sensitive to anxiety. Um, All the things. <laughs> yes. Which, which is why, you know, it goes back to what we talked about earlier about curiosity, which is why curiosity is so important because there's so much to like assess for within a variety of different domains and contexts to be able to help someone. Uh, no kidding. And this is my TMI. My kiddo is, um, has sensory processing disorder, which is not a diagnosis, but it kind of is, right? And ADHD. And is gifted. Now, gifted is not a diagnosis, but it has its own intensities, the five overexcitabilities. Yeah. And yes, two E exactly. And she has anxiety, which is 40 to 60% comorbid with ADHD. Right. Autism. And they have a lot of sensory things related. So each of those pies, when I'm working with my uh, kiddo, I don't want to say working. I don't work with my kiddo. I relate to my kiddo. When I'm relating to my kiddo, um, I have to consider which part of this is ADHD related, which part of this is intensity related, and which part of this is anxiety related. And they are sometimes difficult to, you know, suss apart. Sounds like you, you're kind of always on. <laughs> with some diagnosis, yes. Right. But with yeah. my kiddo, yes. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean between like work and your kiddo that, you know, that you got to be on it all the time. Um, okay. So, you know, in the information that you had sent me about sexual anxiety, it appears that sexual anxiety can be impacted by any sort of anxiety disorder. Um, and I'll just mention a few here, like uh, generalized anxiety, social anxiety, PTSD, panic disorder. I mean, you OCD. even mentioned acute OCD. Yes. Um, and um, acute stress disorder and adjustment disorder even, um, and medical, I mean, there's, there's a whole lot of different kinds of anxiety. Um, so my question is, if you were to include sexual anxiety in the next version of the DSM, would it be its own separate diagnosis, a modifier for existing anxiety disorders, or both? And then if it were its own disorder, what criteria would you would you like ascribe for it? Uh, yeah, that's a difficult one. Yes, modifiers for all the anxieties because all of the anxieties have specific ways that they impact human sexuality. Um, for instance, with OCD, when 
You get really stuck on the doubt of a statement, the space in between something that may be true or not true. Um, uh, it can lead to obsessing thoughts. And uh, I, the, the example I, I have is um, a person who thought they could get women pregnant by washing their clothes at the laundromat. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a sexual, um, that's in the sexual functioning realm, right? That's a sexual functioning consideration or someone who's uh, OCD and has to shower for an hour before having sexual intimacy and um, has to avoid fluids during intimacy. So we're or talking- sexual orientation OCD. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's that. Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, like most people can ask themselves, Oh, am I gay? Well, maybe, or no, not at all. Or yeah, kind of, but someone with OCD gets stuck on that uncertainty and doubt. Right. Yeah. It's pervasive. It's terrible, but uh, it is manageable. It is totally manageable. Uh, okay. But for the other end of your question, which is, you know, um, uh, Helen Kaplan Singer wrote a book on sexual aversion and mostly, you know, it was in the eighties, I think. And most of it was really focused on um, uh, psychodynamic or psychoanalysis thought rather than, you know, sexual aversion itself. And I think really sexual aversion was a great way to explain sexual anxiety. Um, but uh, it's, I, I think the name was terrible. Like it's, you know, anxiety, <laughs> yeah. anxiety's main mode of operation is to get us to avoid the things that scare us, you know, bear, run away, right? Um, so aversion is technically true, but not technically helpful. Um, so what the DSM did was relegate it to, you know, a modifier, basically, that um, sexual aversion could be a reason for um, low desire, low arousal. But um, I really think that it, I'm not exactly sure. I haven't put a lot of thought into this. I think it could be possible to have sexual anxiety as a diagnosis. Um, mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that sexual anxiety is usually tied to the good old regular anxieties. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I just had a random question come up. Um, How does modern analysis play into the way you work or approach sex? Hmm. Um, Yeah, well... I help people put their thoughts and feelings into words, help people identify how they're feeling. So, you know, some, sometimes couples stop having sex because they're mad at each other or frustrated or can't figure out how they feel. Resentful. Resentful. That's a big one. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so I help couples and, and people and partners figure out how they feel and what's going on. Cool. Okay. So in what ways can the systems we are socialized by set the stage for the development of sexual anxiety? And can you give us some examples of, of what that might look like? Oh. <laughs> yeah. That's so big. 
you know, it's really big because, you know, for instance, um, sex education has been fairly limited and particularly in the case where it's been uh, taught as abstinence only, which means that if kids are having sexual experiences, they got no one to talk to. So they're forming these sexual experiences without having an adult that they can really feel comfortable with. Our culture um, uh, really um, puts a lid on openly talking about our sexuality and our sexual functioning. So they're not getting it at home. They're not getting it at school. They're not getting at their spiritual institutions. That's a big, 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 big problem. So what we're finding today in this new um, internet world where kids are getting devices younger and younger is we're seeing really young kids learn about porn really early. So instead of getting their first kiss or peck on the lips, they're now giving their first oral sex or having anal sex, you know, before that first kiss. And it's just kind of rewritten a little bit about sex education for kids. Um, Other ways uh, is marketing and advertising. Um, It used to be that the Disney characters had no muscles on the men that were portrayed. And now the men in Disney um, movies and shows have ribs and, you know, muscles going on. And those kind of expectations uh, put people in a bind for how they believe or think they should look. And then we get body dysmorphia, right? Um, Or dysphoria. Uh, yeah, and, and the point is, is that those ideas and ways of seeing ourselves and others um, creates eating disorders, creates uh, low self-confidence and identity. Um, people are afraid to have sex with the light on or, you know, not under the covers. So I, I really wish that people felt really good about who they are individually. Everybody mm-hmm. is beautiful. Everybody is beautiful. I totally agree. And what's really interesting to me is that, you know, as you had mentioned earlier, it's hard to talk about sex in our culture, yet everything in our culture is sexualized. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that, like, you know, mismatch there? It's taboo. Um, Esther Perel uh, has a neat quote that I like. Um, She says that loves crave getting to know each other and sex craves novelty. And, you know, she's right, but I don't know if it has to. I don't know if it has to. I do know that we have to work to kind of keep things connected and fresh and interesting for each other, but that's that's like working on our relationships. Um, But sex in our culture is um, taboo. Um, It used to be And and we see this all throughout history. The Chinese women would um, uh, wrap their feet to make their feet very desirable for men. We've had necks and shoulders and backs and ankles and knees all be sexualized over time, um, not being shown. So because we um, subvert sexuality to be something that we can't talk about, that's taboo it then hyposexualizes it on the other end. And 
a part of this is intentional. I remember going to Bhutan once and seeing penises drawn on the houses as a sign of fertility to encourage, you know, that they're in growth mode. They want lots of babies to help take care of their community. And I, I can understand that. Um, but I, I don't know if it's actually proving my point if, it, if I'm getting lost in a point, but I, I think that um, if we could create a culture that's more inclusive to the diversity of sex that actually happens. Um, and that's a big point I want to make is that everybody does sex differently and any assumption or narrative in our culture that has people believing that there's just one way to do sex and that's heterosexual missionary style. Um, man, Sounds I'm awful. Yeah, it's <laughs> wrong. Everybody has sex different. Everyone, not a single person has sex the same. So I think that if we had a culture that really was able to um, incorporate that, I don't know if sex would have to be so novel. I really enjoy um, getting to know someone for a long time sexually. And even that's kind of novel on its own. Well, and another thing too that I think can definitely result just because as you were talking, I was thinking another thing that could also result in like sexual anxiety is like, you know, we hear a lot of kink and fetish shaming. Right. Um, And I was curious to what extent you think something being taboo is important to a fetish being a fetish. Does that make sense? Oh, that's a tough one. People differ on that. You know, like sometimes we need that. I had a goth phase in my, in my youth, right? Like I was, um, I needed to feel different so that I could really get away from the normative that I saw that I didn't agree with, that I struggled with. Um, Eventually I was able to incorporate my own identity and my own diversity and that was not a problem. So yeah, sometimes we need those really, um, you know, shadowy, dark uh, ideas, symbols, icons to help us yeah. find who we are. Well, and I also think to some extent, like taboo equals excitement for, yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, I think it, it, it does, but if, if it's something that becomes something that's home, then it's just, it feels natural. It doesn't, it's not about taboo anymore. It's just, right. this is, this is the neat way that I've, you know, actualized my being, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe not using actualized is the best word, but <laughs> this um, is the best way I've come into my own sense of self. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you talk to us a little bit? And I know we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier in our conversation, uh, but can you talk to us about short-term stress, long-term stress, trauma, and how the experience of these play into sexual anxiety? Uh, yeah. Um, they all make a difference. And I think the most important thing to really mention about this is that Sometimes you want to tackle the trauma before you work on the sexual functioning. And sometimes you want to work on the sexual functioning and not tackle the trauma. 
Um, I, I, I don't consider myself a trauma specialist. I've taken a few, you know, trainings on what uh, folks who specialize in trauma try to do. There's different approaches. Um, my approach is um, with couples or people who come in who are experiencing trauma triggers and sexual functioning. I just help them find a way to function in a way that doesn't aggravate those triggers more. Feel that, safe. Yeah. makes it a little safer and that the partner can be supportive in that safety right. creation. So I tend to do more of that. Now, if it, if it seems like the trauma is really pervasive or in, in, intensively disrupting this person's life, not just their sexuality or their sexuality and not just their life, whichever, then I would talk to them about maybe working on some of that trauma. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So it's a, a matter of degree. Because yeah. we know trauma doesn't go away, right? So sometimes it's a matter of working with it. Yes. And I don't know how many trauma therapists are sex positive and feel comfortable talking to their clients about helping reclaim their sexuality. Um, it, is, it is a revolutionary act to own our own sexuality. It's revolutionary. It is freedom finding to own our own sexuality. And the powers in this universe work so hard to take it away. I would like every therapist to be more thoughtful and inclusive of sexuality issues, sexual functioning from birth to death. It is, we are sexual beings. Yeah, I can totally, totally agree with that. So, now, sexual anxiety can be experienced in terms of avoidance of sex sexual situations or compulsive engagement in sexual situations, which to me appears to mirror like a, a, a fight versus flight response, right? Yeah. Um, so what reasons or types of factors would contribute to a person avoiding sexual situations or compulsively engaging in sexual situations? Uh, individual history. So, for instance, um, in the gay male community, uh, um, I don't know why women don't get their own bathhouses. It really upsets me. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a good question. That's a good question. <laughs> it's because our sexuality has been marginalized for a long time. For sure. Yeah. And um, oh, um, let, let, just steer me away from LBD. I'm not going to talk about LBD. <laughs> it really makes, gets my hide every time. But anyway, we should have bathhouses. Well, you know, there is kind of in the community – um, you know, uh, anonymous sex, um, bathhouses, uh, men often are placed having that hypersexuality on them, right? You got penises drawn, uh, I guess it's people with penises, sorry, but um, penises are drawn in, on the walls of homes in Bhutan, you know, uh, it, it just hypersexualizes the penis. So, you know, it, it depends on like, there's uh community narratives, you know, dominant narratives, like uh, in the gay male community, it's, it's much more accepted to have anonymous sex based on the history of the having to hide, not being mm -hmm. able to talk about sexuality. And so you may find gay men will have compulsive sex sometimes because of managing stress and anxiety. 
Now, it's not all the time. It's just some of the time. Then you have heterosexual women who are taught not to prioritize their sexuality, are taught more of a passive idea of sexuality. Um, Then you're going to see some of those people in those populations um, withdrawing more and avoiding. Um, So a lot of this in some ways is reclaiming ourselves from the narratives that impose upon us. That makes sense. Yeah. What are your thoughts on gender diversity as it relates to sexual anxiety? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a good one. All right. And I appreciate the language that you're using, by the way, the people with penises. I know that's very intentional, and I just wanted to say I appreciate that. Oh, good, because it's, it's still a challenge sometimes, right? Um, thank you. Uh, yeah, there's two ways I think it's really important. Um, one thing I used to talk about was that uh, – you know, lesbians didn't have a language for their sexual intimacy in a way that heterosexuals had or gay men had. And so um, it was really important to develop that language. So intergender diversity, right? It's kind of the same thing. We have to create the language around what does it mean to have gender diverse sex? Some people have penises and some people have vaginas and some people have a little of both and um, you know uh, some people have breasts and some people don't and our gender roles and ideas of what it means to be gendered can be really interesting uh, points within that. So what I'm saying is the body dysmorphia is part of it, particularly for gender. Um, there can be this idea to meet the standards of what it means to be male or female. Um, And culture plays a part in that. And so really understanding where we fit into all that um, has a difference, makes a difference. The other part is, is that um, we have very limited ideas on what good sex is supposed to look like. Usually when people think of sex, they think of intercourse. Sex is not intercourse. My kid came home in third grade and said um, her friend had told her that sex was running out into traffic naked. Oh, God, that's an awful idea. (laughs) Well, I told her it, it could be. It could be. Sex is anything we want it to be. And... Uh, my whole mission in life is to expand our erotic canvas. So that means we get to define what sex is for us. We don't have to go by what anybody else thinks. It doesn't have to have any penetration. It doesn't have to have a single orgasm. I have some really creative ideas in mind, but the point is, is that I really want to encourage people to get more creative with how they view their sexuality and their sexual intimacy. Oh, I I totally agree. 100%. 20 billion percent with you. Um, so how do things like fear of inadequacy or fear of rejection play into sexual anxiety? Hmm. One, it can be hard to get out there and find a partner if you don't feel good about yourself. So putting yourself out there can make it uh, be a real big challenge. Um, the sooner you recognize that you're struggling with that kind of anxiety, the sooner you can come in and get some help and get some freedom to go out there and date and meet people. 
Um, it can get us into relationships that aren't really a good fit because we're too afraid to go and find a different one. It could leave us feeling at home and alone because we feel too uncomfortable to get out there and try the dating pool or to withstand the dating pool. Um, that's a real challenge too. Um, but also uh, a lot of mm, OCD can sometimes get stuck on the fear of that a relationship, it's relationship OCD, where there's a fear that the partner will not want to be with them or really don't love them or care for them. So, and OCD is not an anxiety specific. It's been moved to a whole different um, section of the DSM and for good reason, but it does have an anxiety-like component that's important to approach in similar ways. So um, it can help, um, it, can, it can make it a challenge for a partner to feel comfortable approaching their partner if they're struggling with how they're feeling about themselves, either approaching physically, sexually, emotionally, uh, through communication, even nonverbal, all that stuff can be really challenged. So it sounds to me like somebody with a fear of inadequacy or a fear of rejection might do more avoidance of sexual situations than like compulsive engagement. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I'm, I'm trying to think, I'm, I'm sorry to pause, but I was trying to think about, you know, I mentioned that performance anxiety is, is not a, a diagnosis, but it can be something that plays into social anxiety because of that fear of rejection. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there, there are other ways that we can uh, feel inadequate and um, not be about social anxiety. Right. So I just think that's important. Um, you know, our, our self-confidence, our sense of self, our history of trauma, our upbringings can all impact how we see ourselves and how we see the world. And this is where I really believe that insight therapy is the most helpful. Totally agree with you. Mm -hmm. And you know, you may think you have social anxiety when really it's just a history of trauma and turn that stuff around with just a little bit of insight. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. How about attachment in early development? How does that impact the development of sexual anxiety? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So um, someone has been brought up in a very conservative home where premarital sex is not okay. Um, uh, sex is not okay. It's viewed very negatively. Some people really struggle with feeling okay with sex later, even when they're married or partnered for a lifetime, right? Mm -hmm. So um, a part of that, uh, I'm working with someone now who's just now um, having a uh, pleasure in their sexual intimacy, arousal, right? And um, had never uh, masturbated um, because it wasn't okay. Okay, so, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, it can, can help that way. But also what happens is, you know, anxiety we have found is um, inherent, can be inheritable. But we also know that anxiety can hijack our stress system. So if we're growing up in chronic stress, that can leave us anxious. 
and we would have to find ways to manage that chronic stress to kind of, uh, you know, hit the brakes more than we're hitting the gas. Um, and that's a little different than being anxiety uh, that's inherited, right? Right. Organic is what I would call that, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, organic anxiety. Organic anxiety, on the other hand, is something that you're probably going to live with for a long time, right? And it may not go away, but there are tools to manage it. And every person manages their anxiety differently. Yeah, totally. And, and again, I think that's where curiosity comes into play again to help try and figure out what those things are. Um, and, you know, with, with anxiety, oftentimes we can know on a logical level that our anxiety is irrational, but simultaneously not know this in an emotional sense. So what sorts of factors would you say maintain and persist sexual anxiety? So it sounds like the exposure to stress or trauma definitely plays a role. Yes, but our beliefs and ideas. So you do have to challenge the beliefs and ideas. And they don't have to be irrational, right? Um, there are a lot of fears that are really rational. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. Um, matter of fact, uh, you know, with COVID, this pandemic, um, my kiddo's going back to school. And I have a pretty rational fear about that, right? Um, how I manage that fear might be not so helpful, right? So I think that's also part of the consideration is that we do have a right to have fear, but managing fear doesn't mean that we get rid of that fear. It just means we have the courage in face of it. Yeah. And, and when I say anxiety is irrational, I'm more so referring to um, a lot of the anxieties we have around what I call our first world problems, you know, not, not like meeting a bear in the woods. Cause that is definitely a rational, <laughs> a rational fear. Um, but, but yes, you're, you're, and I completely agree with you. It is our belief systems. It's our thinking. Yeah. And I'm going to challenge you on the irrational. Um, let me tell you why. What we know about anxiety and stress is that any negative event, any negative event can, um, uh, elicit the stress response. Right. And uh, anything from a history of anxiety to a history of stress to our coping mechanisms to our personality traits can influence whether or not that anxiety kind of sticks. Okay. And what that means is that um, it's not always irrational, but it is often unknown, unconscious. And that's where the insight comes in again, because it's like, um, I could think of a million things uh, that it's just like getting ready for the vacation. Now, I've, I've been to 90 countries, so I've had a chance to desensitize to the anxiety, I guess, consciously working on that. But, um, you know, you really have to, um, I think, look back and really look at what are the fears going on into this. Is it a history of having um, parents blow up around vacations? Does it automatically unconsciously make you anxious to get ready for vacation because you're worried your parents are going to blow up at you? 
right? So we don't always know where the sources of the anxiety that are kind of coming for us. So they're not always irrational, maybe unexplainable, but they're not always irrational. Well, I mean, when it comes to, I mean, I think that the reasons, like you said, the the reasons why a lot of people have anxiety is because of a event that happened, right? That may have even happened chronically, right? Mm -hmm. And we may not have the awareness that that is what is causing us to feel anxious in those moments. Um, But I would argue that at times there are processes in those current moments, um, you know, cognitive processes in those current moments that are irrational, that maintain that, that sort of fear and continued stress surrounding that, that particular event. Does that make sense? It does. Can you give me an example? Yeah. So like, we'll use the trip idea. Say that you know, you went on, as a kid, every summer, you went on a trip with your parents and there was always some issue. Um, you know, later on, since we don't know, we don't make the connection that those two things are tied. We just know that we experience anxiety about trips, right? Right. So we may instead focus on like things like... Uh, we know the what ifs, mm-hmm. which we know that, I mean, what if we could, what if anything, mm-hmm. but that's not helpful. You know, that's not going to help you feel better. And in fact, that just increases anxiety about said event. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? And I, I wouldn't say that what if is necessarily rational or irrational, um, but it is like a cognitive process that can work to be tweaked such that anxiety isn't escalated further in those moments. Ah, Okay, so I think I would call those um, uh, cognitive distortions. Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like fortune-telling, mind-reading, the jumping to conclusions, catastrophizing, all those sorts of things. That's what I'm talking about in terms of irrational thinking that helps maintain that anxiety. Yeah, Yeah, and that's important because we have to examine you know, anxiety impacts our thinking, our feelings, and our behavior. So we have to look at all three of those spheres to get an idea of what's going on. So our our thinking could be stinking, right? Um, And identifying that. What we know about anxiety is that it tends to, um, uh, you know, make our worries, our fears, or the negative events 40% larger. So if I think the roof's going to fall down on my head, I'm going to think it's going to fall down on my head 42%, right? Um, now, if, if I'm worried about the what if the roof falls on my head, the worry is a sign that we need to make a plan. So, okay, why am I worried about the roof falling down? Oh, well, my, my kid could be parentless, right? Like, they're not going to have me anymore. Well, I can't help that I could be hit by a bus outside. So what can I do if I'm killed by the roof? Oh, okay. I can take out insurance in case I'm injured. I could um, write a will. I could set up a godparent, 
right? And all those things would take care of the fact if I died early for my kid. So we have to look at what are the beliefs and right. things going on underneath that. And um, when we do that, the next job is to let go of the worry. And that's what I, when I do that, when we do that, we call in the relaxation techniques. And usually for folks, generalized anxiety disorder is the one disorder that will have your everyday worries about everyday things like going on a trip or paying the bills or walking the dog. They'll worry about it all. They'll worry about, they worry about everything. And um, uh, it's pretty normal stuff to worry about, but it's worried about all the time. And generalized anxiety, I usually am there saying 20 minutes a day of relaxation training. Let's find the things that work for you and include mindfulness throughout that. And it'll help put the brakes on your nervous system that's gassed up a lot more than it is for others. Yeah. 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 Did that make sense? I'm like, ah, I'm talking so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it totally made sense. Okay. Um, so what would you say just in your experience as a clinician, what would you say the top 10 myths about sex are that yes. may, you know, play into sexual anxiety? You know, I had to think, let's see. Um, uh, yes. One of them is you don't have to have orgasms um, and you don't have to have uh, intercourse. Sex is bigger than that and is all inclusive. Um, in that sense, um, uh, size doesn't matter. Um, uh, that's a really big one too. You know, um, there's a lot around that. I'll leave that there. Yeah. What are some of the others? I have to think about it. It's been a while since I looked at it. I know I pulled it up. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I pulled it up where I can actually see it. There it is. Okay. Um, oh, masturbation is bad for you. Y'all, we need to masturbate. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, we have the right to feel pleasure. Um, we don't have to have erections. Um, because, you know, sex is, you know, anything we want it to be. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think when we get really goal oriented, it becomes a problem for us. We are not able to stay present and enjoy where we are in that moment. So I think a lot of my work with um, sexual intimacy is helping people get out of their heads and into their bodies. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So switching, well, I guess before we do this, uh, is there anything else that I I didn't ask that you would like to share or think is important about sexual anxiety? Mm. Also, let me just say another couple of things on the myths. Sex does not have to be painful. Yes. Um, I think that's really important. Um, All right. For sexual anxiety, uh, I'm not just talking about how anxiety can come up um, as related to sex itself. I'm I'm talking about how anxiety impacts our sexual functioning, our sexual identity, and um, our, our sexual beliefs. So, you know, the thing is, is that when people go through trauma, big life transitions, um, medical problems like uh, uh, cancer, um, uh, it can impact our sexual functioning. Uh, particularly with cancer, um, uh, 
it affects how we see our sexual selves, how we see our bodies. Um, it affects uh, for uh, people with vaginas. It can affect the lubrication within the vagina. Also, our arousal may take a little bit longer because we're not feeling our greatest. So all of these things are really important to consider. And, you know, part of our assessment is to figure out how important is sexual intimacy and sexual functioning and this person's relationship before and during and after having cancer. Um, so all these things are important to consider. There are also one other thing is that some medical issues can mimic anxiety. So That's true. clients can come in seeming to be anxious. And I really encourage people to go and talk to their medical doctor about their anxiety, because there are medical conditions that um, have symptoms that look like anxiety. Yep. That's a good point. Um, okay. Well, thank you for sharing all that with us. So switching gears again, back to you as a therapist, what, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? I have experience. Uh, you know, that experience is on a continuum. We can never do enough work to support populations um, that are marginalized. Telling me. <laughs> yeah, and I... I I deal with that. It's a challenge for me. Um, I, I deal with that by getting a lot of education um, and setting up my practice to speak to diversity the most over the, a matter of fact, I just got uh, um, turned down to be in a group that uh, didn't like the fact that I listed so much diversity on my website. And they said, you don't mention the word marriage anywhere. And I'm like, you do realize there's a large portion of the population that can't get married. And I'm not a marriage therapist. I'm a relationship therapist. It's a relationship right. I work with, not, not the legal system. Right. Um, so that's their, that's their limitation. Uh, I've, I have worked with uh, gender diversity since um, for 15 years and particularly gender diversity for uh, people of color. So ALGO is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite groups in town. Um, uh, and out youth as well, because of the fabulous work they're doing with teens. But to me, um, uh, if I don't help support these communities, um, if we don't have allies in these communities, then they're not going to have as much of a chance otherwise. So it's, I think it's my job. Um, now, what that means is, is that I, I don't know. Um, I've taken quite a few. Um, uh, I don't know, group trainings and um, uh, with a social justice aim. And um, I read a lot of books. And it is a thing that we have to do together. So um, my hope is to see for working with and increasing the uh, power equality for people of color. I think our jobs is to just get in relationship as much as possible and do that work. Now, a part of that is to get in is white people. 
right? To get right. in relationship as much as possible and to have those conversations and to take that and grow beyond that. Um, it's tough work and I'm trying to do my part and I still have a lot to learn. So my main my main way of operating, and I've been this way for 15 years, it started off with the kink and poly community. Um, we have to make space for our diversity. And there's microaggressions and there's just plain ignorance. And if we don't make a space where we can openly talk about those and how it impacts each other when those happen, then we can't grow through them. So I remember a long time ago when SNL started the whole, that's so gay thing. A lot of people were like, that's so terrible to say, don't say that. And we had to figure out like, who could you have these conversations with? Who do you want to not have those conversations with? And the thing is, is that it's not always safe to have those conversations. So really, I think um, the main thing I offer as a uh, white, um, queer, uh, poly, kinky, spiritually different person is I just provide a safe space for people to be who they are. And I probably put my foot in my mouth every other day, but I recognize that as part of my being human. And I also believe there's a responsibility to my relationships to show up and to listen and to hear. Is that an overly complicated answer, do you think? No, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so a lot of times when a new client or couple um, has initial, an initial ske- session scheduled with a therapist, you know, leading up to it, they might start feeling somewhat anxious. Um, and sometimes it, it helps to know what to expect that first time, right? So what could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about on an ongoing basis? Mm. Yeah, the feedback I get is that I can be direct. Um, um, sometimes people really enjoy that. Because of my strength-based training, I ask a lot of questions. Some people don't like that. Um, but I'm usually pretty soft-spoken. And um, another feedback that I get is that people are really glad that I'm so open to diversity. That's probably one of the biggest things. They just feel normalized walking into my office. Um, I am really open about people's ways of being in this world. I think it's important. Um, But, you know, really sessions with me is kind of just like we're talking here, except Mm -hmm. if, if you were a client, I would be asking lots of questions and, you know, um, letting you know how your words were impacting me and, um, and it, it would be a relationship, a therapeutic relationship. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I really enjoy, there's a few, a few questions as we go down the rest of the list that I really enjoy. This is one of them. Um, how would you say your clients would describe or experience you? Like what, I know you just named uh, quite a few adjectives, but yeah. you know what? What do you think they would say? You know, what do you get more often than not? Uh, those adjectives. And now the vision that comes up as you ask that is: I was walking in a pride parade several years ago, and someone from the sidelines ran through 
the crowd in the parade and hugged me. And I've been taken into aftercare rooms at parties and received thanks. So I don't hear a lot of feedback, but the three or four times that I've heard it, um, it's just blown me away. And I'll show you this. This is one of my favorite things. One of my supervisees gave me this. <laughs> cute uh for everybody at home who can't see it it says it's a coffee cup that says fucking awesome therapist <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome okay um next question has gotten some controversial answers um are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients yeah i cool. think that's important um, I do consider it a therapeutic relationship and one that can heal. So if people have had parents or siblings or love objects that have not accepted, not really connected and been there for them, my job is to, in some ways, reveal that and repair. Right. Connect. Con connect. Yeah. How do you define holding space for someone? Another one of my favorite questions. Yeah. So holding space is allowing clients to be angry with me, to be angry with their love objects, to be angry with the world, to be happy or sad with me, with the love objects and the world to talk about things that are deeply personal and vulnerable without that fear of being judged or told that you got to take care of that and diet and exercise is the only way. And I don't, I remember I went to a therapist one time in the course of two sessions, they gave me seven book recommendations. Oh, wow. That's, that's, a lot. Not, <laughs> that's not how to connect. No. It's actually a way to push people away. So um, holding space is allowing people to be who they are. Got it. What's the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? <laughs> Charge what you're worth. It's good advice. <laughs> <laughs> good advice. Um, what have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? Everyone struggles. Everyone has their own challenges. And it's just beautiful to me, this world. And beautiful and tragic, this world. I'd agree with that. And I think I feel less alone knowing yeah. people in this world because of what I do. And um, it's, it's a real blessing. Love it. I know you mentioned you go on a five-mile walk at least once a week. But on a regular basis, what do, you, what do you do to take care of yourself, especially after a rough day? Yeah. Uh, let me think. Um, play. So right now, um, I just finished the game uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild three times. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, my kiddo is trying to get me to do Minecraft, which is a little above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> but you can play two-person, and that's what's making it work. Um, 
uh, cook. I love to cook for fun. What's your favorite food to cook or like uh, what type of style? Oh, right now? Um, right now it's plant forward. So anything that's working with whole grains and local vegetables, I'm really trying my best to find combinations that help get me through the day busy and help me not to get to the fast, fast food drive throughs. Um, yep. That's, that's my favorite thing. It's a right challenge now. sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How would you define happiness? <laughs> it's a very subjective feeling. Okay, next two questions are a little vulnerable. What is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician to date? Forgetting a session, that's always terrible. And I have a policy that if I screw that up, um, you get your next session free. Yeah, Just uh, I've done that before. (laughs) It's terrible, yeah. Well, what I did once is I double booked somebody and so I just... Cop, uh, comped their their next session yeah. um that was awful <laughs> but good for you I'm right there with you good for you for you know making sure that there's a consequence for you right because, of course yeah yeah it's only fair right we have 24-hour cancellation policies and shit you know <laughs> exactly exactly um are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy oh my goodness <laughs> Am I in therapy? I'm in therapy overload. So I really am all about modern analysis right now. So I'm in a group therapy training group with some of the coolest folks in town. And um, I'm in another group that's more new that helps me really uh, see new groups. And I do group therapy training three times a year with these intensive um, uh, weekend trainings. And I just signed up for my fourth year. um, couples therapy. Um, I'm my kids in equine therapy. Um, uh, yeah, we, we are therapy connoisseurs, especially during COVID. Like I think we've, we've, we have the most therapy going on right now in COVID than we probably ever have in our whole relationship. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you and or sexual anxiety that perhaps I haven't asked? <laughs> uh, no, I, I just would invite people to check me out because, you know, um, you can have a session and uh, if it doesn't work out, then we can talk about how to find you someone that would be a better fit. People aren't obligated to work with me if they don't feel comfortable working with me. Um, so yeah, just come check me out. Awesome. Cool. Well, listeners, if you'd like to make an appointment with Melissa, uh, please refer to her website listed in the uh, show notes. Um, well, thank you so much for being on the show, Melissa. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week featuring Mia Rolden, 
licensed clinical social worker and licensed chemical dependency counselor, who will be talking about her work in an area of specialty, the intersectionality of eating disorders and gender diversity. Next Quest podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmit Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmit Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmit Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmit.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Podcast. Or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.